we're starting a brand new series called The Bad Boys of Easter. You probably have not heard the Easter story approached in this way before, and I like to do Easter in a series and, and work up to Easter Sunday, and today we're going to start, uh, it's a three-week series, so we're here today, we're here next week, and then Easter Sunday, we are not going to be here, we'll be at the Alt Hotel. The Alt Hotel, if you stand outside this building and you look straight ahead, You'll see the tallest building of Quartier d'Istrante. That is the Alt Hotel. Many of you have been there and will be up on the 15th floor uh, that morning on Easter Sunday. So no service on the 31st, but we'll be out with the volunteers over at the Sugar Shack and, uh, and Maple Syrup, okay? Uh, so th this is a series that we're starting, and you might say, wow, that is a, that is a strange, strange title. What does this, what, is the, what, are, what are you after here? Um, just a reality for you. Uh, maybe some of you who are you're in this room and you know you're you know you're looking at the church or you're here for you know your family brought you here or something like that. But you know that you're not really you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. But you're very observant of Christians. <laughs> you're very observant of the church, and in your observation of Christians and of the church in general, you scratch your head a little bit. And you say, well, why is it that the Christians and that the church appears to resist their, or their own God? Why is it that they don't often live up to their own standards? Why is it that they seem to, uh, well, to put it in our terminology, resist the God that we serve? Uh, Non-Christians have a word for this. It starts with an H. You know what it is? H-Y. It's a yeah, hypocrisy. <laughs> That's the word that non-Christians use about us. And oftentimes they're right. Um, some people say the church is filled with hypocrites, and I say it is. Uh, why don't you come join us? You can be one of the hypocrites with us. Um, everybody's life usually has a degree of hypocrisy to it. But when you, when you say that you're a Christian, people watch. And they watch to see if the way you live lines up with the things that you, uh, you, you claim to believe um, and sometimes they see a disparity between what we say and how we actually uh, live our lives. Um, now, I think sometimes it's a little unfair. Uh, here, here, here we are trying to trust a God that we can't see. Um, any of you ever seen God? Have you ever seen Jesus face to face? Uh, some people claim to have, you know, an experience like the Apostle Paul or something. But most people have never seen Jesus face to face. Um, any of you ever heard Jesus speak to you in an audible voice? Probably not. Uh, one time I heard God laugh at me. Um, I'll tell you that story another time. But I've never, uh, apart from then, uh, and it wasn't even an audible laugh. I just sensed that God was actually laughing at me. Uh, never heard the voice of God. Um, so you're trusting in a God that you can't see. Uh, a God who speaks through ancient literature. So what the Bible is, it's an ancient piece of literature, if you put it in you know, modern terminology. So you have to learn how to read the Bible properly if you want God to speak to you. A God who speaks through the voice of conscience, who speaks in general through circumstance, impressions, uh, but mostly through his word. And you're, you're banking your life on this. 
So, you know, sometimes uh, it's a little harsh to call Christian people hypocrites, but all to say, we do have these areas in our lives that we don't submit to God. We, we resist the God that we claim to serve. And in this series leading up to Easter, I'm going to look at three bad boys of the Easter story. Uh, these are three men who chose not to follow Jesus. These aren't, these aren't wonderful stories of conversion, you know, like the Apostle Paul. These are people who went the other way, people who walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, stood next to him, uh, people who touched him for all intents and purposes. They were in the company of Jesus himself in the flesh, and they went the other way. We say, oh, they're such terrible people. But we will see ourselves in each one of these three men, the bad boys of Easter. And the first one we're going to look at today, his name, at least in the New Testament, the name that we see is Caiaphas. Uh, he's the first bad boy. And, and who was he? Does any of you, do any of you know? It says it on the screen on the next slide. See if you're awake. Starts with an H again. Yeah, he was the high priest, we read in the gospel stories. Uh, and we read that over and over again, this high priest. And the problem is we don't really know what a high priest is. But before we get there, Caiaphas is now extremely famous. Uh, and the reason is this is the only person in the entire Bible whose bones and casket we have found in the modern era. If you go to the next the next slide, I have stood by this box. Um, this is a limestone ossuary. An ossuary was a, a, a chest that they put the bones of the deceased in in, ancient, in the ancient Middle East. So if you were well-to-do, you got buried in a tomb. Um, and what would happen, of course, is that the decomposition process would take place and you were left with these bones. And they would take these bones and they would put them in these boxes called ossuary. We found hundreds and hundreds of them in the area of Jerusalem and the outskirts, etc. And in 1990, they found this one. And this one is very ornately designed, as you can see. Like I said, I've, I've stood in front of it at least one time. And it's quite an experience when you stand in front of it. You, you know, you, you get chills down your spine because this is now... There are very few scholars who dispute it now. This is now said to be the ossuary with the bones in it of Caiaphas, the high priest who put Jesus on trial on uh, what we call today Good Friday. Um, and this is, or Thursday into Friday, and this is a magnificent find, and you can read it from, uh, from right to left there in Aramaic. It says, Joseph, when you translate it, Joseph, son of Caiaphas. There's no other person in all of the Bible that we have this. You literally stand in front of, it's a 2,000-year-old casket. Friends, I have stood in front of many, many caskets at many, many funerals, but I've never stood in front of one like that. It is a remarkable experience, and he is now very famous because of this, this find in, uh, in the year 1990. Um, and we see his name there, uh, which is not in the gospel stories, the, sto the name Joseph. Before we get into why, uh, you have to understand who the high priest was. Because if you're going to understand why he was a bad boy, 
uh, and why we call him a bad boy today. You've got to understand what's going on in the story and, and the, the politics and the intrigue in order to get what's happening. And um, this, this man, the high priest, had a tremendous amount of authority uh, back then in the ancient world. So uh, go to the next slide. The picture on the screen actually is from um, uh, The Passion of the Christ. Any of you ever seen this movie? I do recommend you watch it every Easter if you're on an empty stomach, okay? It's very, very raw, a very gruesome movie. It is the highest, still the highest grossing R-rated movie ever made, uh, still, and uh, very gruesome, and that is the high priest uh, as portrayed in the movie. By the way, um, for homework, again, seeing as we're in a movie theater, there are actually two, uh, two worth-watching movies, Easter movies, about the Easter story uh, on Netflix. You can watch them if you have a Netflix account, and even Netflix Canada. You don't have to cheat and try and steal the feed from the United States like some people try. No, Netflix Canada has these two movies, and they're not bad. Uh, one of them is uh, Son of God, which, which really it follows the story rather well. Uh, and the other one, which I watched the other night, is called Risen. I was very, very impressed with both of these, and uh, they really help you see different angles of the Easter story. Anyway, uh, you can watch that or Mel Gibson's uh, awfully gruesome movie, but excellent movie about the story of, the, of Easter. Anyway, this high priest, you have to understand first and foremost what authority he had. Uh, and let me read you some, some information, okay? The high priest... Uh, he had a number of unique privileges and a number of unique responsibilities. Of course, you first see uh, the, the, the high priest's job description, if you will, in the Old Testament when you have the tabernacle and the temple and you see the office, as it were, of the high priest. He's the guy who had the sole chance and responsibility to enter into the deepest part of the temple what they called the Holy of Holies, where they kept the Ark of the Covenant and so on. And he would go in there on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, once a year, and offer a very special sacrifice for the sins of the entire nation. He was the only man who was allowed to do that, was allowed to go into that place. He was also the head of the judicial body called the Sanhedrin. This is very important for you to understand if you, if you want to learn about Jesus and the Easter account. Uh, back in that day, you know, 2,000 years ago, there was no separation of church and state. Okay, we use that term today, and even in that movie that we'll play in Easter, you'll see that whole debate about the separation of church and state. Hey, forget about all that. You go back to the first century, there's no such separation. Uh, religion and politics and religion and law were, they, there was no separation between them at all in Judaism, okay? The, the, the Romans had their thing, but in Judaism, you did not have a separation between uh, matters of law and matters of religion. They're all together. And the Sanhedrin was like the high court. They were the highest court of the land. And this man uh, uh, in, in this time, his name was Joseph Caiaphas, um, he was the high priest who presided over this court, and they were called the Sanhedrin. And in the Sanhedrin, you had two, two groups, two major groups, almost like modern politics today. You know, you have a majority uh, and you have a minority in various forms of government. Well, back then, the majority in the Sanhedrin were called the Sadducees. 
all right? And the, the minority were called the Pharisees. So it wasn't, it wasn't like, uh, you know, Republicans and Democrats, okay? <laughs> you have your Sadducees and your Pharisees. Now, the Sadducees, you could think of them in modern terms this way. They were more secular Jews in terms of their beliefs. So the Sadducees rejected the supernatural. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe in the resurrection. Uh, they were still Jews, but they would be considered, in their view, somewhat secular today. But they were experts on matters of Jewish law and how to interpret the law of Moses and how to imply the law of Moses. And, of course, the high priest, Caiaphas, he was the t at the top of the food chain. Uh, so he was the top religious dog of the Sadducees, and pardon that, that word, you, you understand I'm speaking, uh, you know, a little cleverly there, uh, but he was the top guy, uh, he, and he himself was a Sadducee. So again, more secular in thought, but certainly Jewish and experts in matters of law. And then you had the Pharisees. Uh, the Pharisees were certainly more orthodox in their view. They did believe in the resurrection of the dead. They did believe in angels. They did believe in the supernatural. They would be kind of today, in today's terms, your, your Bible thumpers. You know, they would be your fundamentalists, all right? Sort of like us, I guess. And these were the Pharisees. So you had these two groups. And at that time, the Sadducees were the majority. And Caiaphas, the high priest, he himself was a Sadducee. And he ruled over this court uh, the Sanhedrin, and Jesus himself stood in front of this court uh, on Thursday night into early Friday morning, okay? So this was a very, very important fellow uh, back then. Under him, you had a group of people called the chief priests. So you had the high priest, again, the top, the top guy, and then you had the chief priests uh, underneath the high priest. And uh, the, the high priest, he stood at the top, and you have this elaborate hierarchy that's underneath him of all these temple staff, if you will, or temple personnel. So you have these chief priests, and there's about 200 Jewish men, and they were uh, high-born, you know? They were of, of esteemed backgrounds and so on, and uh, the most important of this group of chief priests was the captain of the temple. And you see him mentioned in the gospel story as well. He was number two to the chief priest himself. And the captain of the temple, he had to supervise all these other 200 men in the daily temple activities. Uh, they had charge of the services, the temple treasury, the maintenance of all the artifacts in the temple. You with me so far? I know it sounds a little wire. Where are you going with it? Just keep keeps tracking with me, all right? Underneath the chief priests, you had more people, and you had the regular priests. The whole Hummers, they're probably more in my line of work, okay? You had the regular, the regular kinds of priests. They were the ordinary priests of the temple. There's about 7,200 of them back in the time of Jesus, uh, probably Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, was in this lot of priests, one of some 7,000. Um, they could trace their roots back to Aaron from the Old Testament, who's, of course, a brother of Moses. Uh, they were not like the chief priests. They lived outside of the city of Jerusalem in the Judean hill, uh, and Galilean hillside. 
Um, there were 24 clans. They were divided that way, and probably Zechariah was in one of these clans. Um, and each of them served a week at a time in the temple. Uh, they lit fires at the altar. They attended the offerings. They lit the incense. They dealt with the unleavened bread. Uh, they were the ones who dealt with the animals and killed the sacrificial animals. All right, So these were the ordinary priests. And underneath the ordinary priests, you have the Levites. They were the lowest at the spiritual food chain back then, if you will. They're descendants of Levi from the Old Testament. Um, Aaron and all of Israel's priests had been members of this tribe as well. There's some 9,600 of them that high in the first century B.C. Um, like the majority of priests, you've got 24 families that they're organized into, and uh, each course or each uh, uh, family, if you will, served one week at a time. They were guards at the temple. They were policemen. They were doorkeepers. They were singers. They were musicians. They were servants of the temple. So they were, you know, they were running the place. They, they were, you know, the musicians behind us, the people uh, out in the corridor. They're, they're, they're doing all of the operational stuff. Of course, they're being told what to do probably by the ordinary priests. And on top of them are the chief priests. And on top of them is the high priest. So it's very, very elaborate system and organization and Caiaphas at that time was right at the top of the religious food chain if you will and he had a tremendous amount of authority we're told that at that the pilgrimage feasts and there's three of them there's Passover uh, there's Pentecost and there's um, uh, Sukkot or what they call the, the festival of booths Three festivals where the Jews had to come back to Jerusalem and Passover was when Jesus died. We're told that at that time there would have been as many as 18,000 temple personnel or staff, if you add all of these people up, 18,000 serving at the temple, which is 32 uh, square acres, I think, of land. You know, you've got 18,000 people just serving to make that place hum when you have thousands upon thousands of Jews uh, coming to offer sacrifices and whatnot. And this was the scene when Jesus faced the whole Easter experience. Why do I tell you all of this? Because the authority that this man had meant also that he had tremendous, tremendous wealth. Extreme wealth, extraordinary wealth, because all of the Jews... Uh, had to pay what was called a temple tax. And the high priest got a portion of that tax. Um, and so this was an extremely wealthy and powerful man and a person in authority right at the top of the religious system of Judaism, of ancient Judaism, was the high priest. Uh, not only was he in authority, the high priest back at that time, this was a dynasty that we're looking at when we look into the Gospels. Uh, the reason why that ancient ossuary says Joseph Caiaphas or son of Caiaphas, it, it's like um, uh, son of is the last name. Uh, so Jesus, uh, his last name wouldn't be Christ. Okay, Some people think that Christ is a last name. It's not. Christ is a title. Uh, it's a title that means in Greek, it means Messiah. 
So in Hebrew, you'd say the Messiah or the Moschayach. In, in, uh, in Greek, you would say the Christos, the Christ. So Jesus, his last name wouldn't be Christ. It would be the son of Joseph. Okay, that would be like his last name. So in Caiaphas's case, uh, he was Caiaphas um, uh, or Joseph, the son of Caiaphas. When we look into the Gospels, we see his last name, not his first name. And the reason why we know all of this stuff that I'm showing you on the screen is because there's a historian back in Jesus' day, lived around the same time as Jesus. His name was Josephus. And Josephus tells us an awful lot about the high priest and an awful lot about the dynasty of high priests that we see when we look into the Gospels. So we have a fellow by the name of Annas, and I've underlined his name there. And Annas was the high priest from the year 6 to the year 15. Uh, you can see a picture of him that's also from uh, the Passion of the Christ. Now Annas, he had five sons. And all five of his sons, they're all in yellow, would eventually be high priests of Israel. All five of them. I mean, it was a family affair. And these high priests were not elected by Jews. These high priests were chosen by the Romans. So the Roman procurator would choose these high priests probably based on the amount of money that they had, the amount of authority that they thought they carried within Israel. They would be chosen by the Romans, and they would be this connecting point to the Roman authority. And so you had Annas from the year 6 to 15. We learn all this from Josephus. We have his son, uh, Eleazar, from 16 to 17. And then we see Joseph, the son of Caiaphas. Of course, only his last name is in the scripture. And he was chosen and reigned from 18 to 36. Now, the interesting thing about him, and we do see this in the Gospels very briefly, John 18 tells us, that Joseph Caiaphas, this bad boy of Easter, was the son-in-law. Of Annas. So he wasn't, he wasn't one of his descendants, but he married one of his daughters. So he too was in the family. We see it in John 18 that Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. So in a sense, Joseph is in the family too. And then you have Jonathan, you have Theophilus, you have Matthias, you have Annas Jr. All, it's, I mean, it's a dynasty. It's a dynasty of power it's a dynasty of authority. It's a dynasty of control. And our figure for today, Caiaphas, he has a part in this dynasty. We're talking about tremendous wealth, tremendous authority, tremendous power that this whole family had. And you see Annas mentioned in the Gospels as well, and he still holds the title of high priest, even though he's already been deposed, he still holds that title. Any of you ever seen The Godfather before? Those, those, like it's all the power in the family kind of thing? Well, in a sense, in a rough sense, this is the way the office of the high priest ran back at that time. You're dealing with, you know, decades and decades of leadership from the same family, tremendous power, and a lot of money flowing into their pockets. So this is what you're looking at when you go and you investigate the Easter story. So why then am I telling you all of this? What makes, that, what, what makes him a bad boy of Easter, this man Caiaphas? Um, and I'll term it this way, our temple, our nation. When we see Caiaphas uh, in full force for the first time in the Gospels, 
right away we see him uh, being a bad boy. We see some things immediately that, oh my goodness, this man, uh, he's, he's really put his cards on the table. So in Matthew chapter 26, for example, uh, verses 3 to 5, this is toward the end of the gospel narrative, at least as per Matthew. And we see that Jesus and the, the Jesus and the Pharisees, Jesus and the Sadducees, Jesus and the high priest, Jesus and the chief priest, Jesus and the teachers of the law, there is a constant, constant clash between him and all of these people and all of these groups. Jesus had very, very harsh words for these people. Um, he goes on a rant in Matthew chapter 23, I think it is, and he calls these people the worst names in the book. So he calls them snakes, a brood of vipers. He calls them hypocrites, and he says to them, you're all going to hell. This is what Jesus has to say about all of these religious folk. Now, I don't know if you've ever lived in areas where there's snakes. Any of you ever seen a snake up close and personal? Like a bad one, okay? When, when you live in an area, like in the ancient Middle East, you had to watch out for snakes, okay? It's hot, it's dry, that's where they live. Uh, I remember when I went to Africa, uh, I was in, in Zambia, and they told us to watch out for spitting cobras and black mamba. And I learned what these snakes could do to human beings, and I was quite petrified uh, about these snakes. And the place that we were, we were staying, they actually had a 24-hour guard that ran in shifts that would guard the whole compound where we were staying, and uh, the, they would get extra money, these guards, if they managed to kill a snake in the middle of the night. It would either be a spitting cobra or a black mamba. So, oh boy, and they got extra money. Of course, they had ways of dealing with the snakes so that they wouldn't get hurt, but it, snakes, I mean, to, 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 to live in that kind of a culture and then to look at people and say, that is what you are, my friends. Uh, wow, this is, this is what Jesus was calling these, these people in that time and in that place. A brood of vipers. That's a large, large amount of snakes. So Jesus and this, all these groups, there's, a, there's this brewing tension uh, that you will read as you look into the Gospels and you see he clashes with them all the time, all the time. They're always trying to trip him up. They're always asking him these questions to try and turn the crowds against him. And of course, Jesus comes up with these one-liners and these answers and he actually answers questions with questions and he turns the tide on them over and over again and you have this mounting tension that you can sense as you read Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, you can see it is dripping off the pages of Scripture. And it comes to a place where it starts to explode. And here you see an evidence of that, and this is the first instance that Matthew gives us of the high priest Caiaphas. And this is what the backdrop is in Matthew 26, verse 1. When Jesus finished saying all these things, and the all these things is a long, long discussion uh, that you can read in Matthew 24, Matthew 25. He said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. 
And then verse 3, then the chief priests, we learned who they were, and the elders of the people, those are kind of laymen uh, who were regarded as kind of spiritual leaders. They didn't have an official title, but this is who they were, and Jesus didn't get along with them either. The chief priests, the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas. This is our friend uh, Joseph Caiaphas whose name was Caiaphas, and what did they do? They plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and to kill him, to take his life. But not during the feast, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. Now, if you're the high priest of Israel, you're supposed to know the Ten Commandments, yes? And one would think you know the Ten Commandments, and one of those commandments is thou shalt not commit murder. But here you have the high priest. They're at his house. They're at his palace. Don't forget the chief priests are under his authority. He tells them what to do. And you have the high priest of Israel in conspiracy to commit murder. What? Why would he do such a thing? And here's what's going on. Jesus, no matter where he went, no matter what he said, no matter what he did, the problem that they saw with Jesus is the popularity. The crowds were following this man. There were hundreds, sometimes thousands of people who would, who would gather to hear him speak or to see him do something. There were times where people crowded into places. There were times where there's so many people. He, you, you had a person who touched him, and there, who, how could someone? How could you say someone touched you? There's crowds of people around you. Who are you talking about? Remember the woman who touched him and was healed of her issue of, of blood. It was called. You you had he was. The, the popularity was just growing and growing and growing. And this was starting to become a concern. Because if you're wealthy and you're powerful and you're in a dynasty and there's somebody who's starting to attract crowds and you have to deal with the Romans also. And if you have crowds that get too big and they start to perhaps revolt against the Roman authority... You've got a big problem on your hands. You could lose everything that you now control. And this was a growing, growing concern. And then you have this man, Jesus, this, this rabbi who's doing these alleged miracles and who's calling himself the what? The son of God? This is a threat to their monotheism. How could God have a son? What's he talking about? There's only one God. And so he is in a whole lot of um, uh, trouble in that sense, Jesus, because now he's got people so angry, religious people so angry, that they are going to plot to take his life to get rid of this problem. We don't want to lose all of the things that we have. We don't want to lose our temple. We don't want to lose our nation. We don't want to revolt. This person here is an imposter. And in the name of God, we will deal with this, even if we have to break our own commandments to do so. And here you have the high priest in conspiracy to commit murder. And if you watch and you read through Matthew chapter 26 and into Matthew chapter 27 when Jesus is arrested, 
Uh, we'll meet another person next week, uh, Judas, who participated in this whole caper. Uh, but when Jesus gets arrested, he stands in front of eventually this man, Caiaphas, and there is a trial of sorts. Um, I talked about this last year at Easter time, and there is a trial, and you can see Caiaphas use every maneuver that he can to find Jesus guilty of blasphemy, of sedition, of whatever he can find, of sorcery, so that he can find a way to get rid of the problem. This is conspiracy to commit murder, and he is the high priest. Wow, that is a, that's a bad boy. Um, you see him again in John chapter 11, and here verses 45 to 53. And in John's gospel, it's, he pops right into the pages right here. Um, and you see that something magnificent has happened. It's the third time that it has happened. Jesus has raised somebody from the dead. And in this case, it's Lazarus, who is a very known figure in, in Bethany at the time. And Lazarus is dead, and he's buried, and it's, I think, four days uh, that he's, he's, you know, gone. And you have a miracle that takes place that everybody knows about, and that nobody can deny the man who is dead is walking around, and everybody knows who he is. And this is, again, it's running to this tension is going to overflow and boil over. And you see, again, in John's reference, this plot, again, engaged by Caiaphas and company to get rid of Jesus. And in John chapter 11, verse 45, therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and seen what Jesus uh, and had seen what Jesus did they put their faith in him oh crowds but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done and so you have a meeting that takes place the chief priests are going to be there the Pharisees are going to be there the whole Sanhedrin is going to be there these are people who have differing theological views differing political views they don't care They've got a common problem, and his name is Jesus. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Is that a bad thing? For them it is. And then the Romans will come. And the Romans will take away both our temple, note the hour there as if it's theirs, and our nation as if it's theirs. We have to deal with this problem. And then one of them named Caiaphas. Here's our friend again who was high priest that year. He spoke up. And the words that he says are startling. You know nothing at all. He's talking to the whole Sanhedrin. He's talking to the chief priests. He's talking to a group of Pharisees. He's the top, the top guy. He says, you all are ignorant. You know nothing at all. Really? You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die. One man die. Whoa, he's, this conspiracy to commit murder is what it is. That one man die for the, for the people, for the people, then for the whole nation to perish. Here's the answer. 
Here's the solution in today's terms. If you're in the mafioso, waste them. Martyr him, deal with them. It's better to do that than to lose the nation. If he causes an uproar, look, it's past Passover is a couple of days away. He's gonna, we've got hundreds of thousands of people coming in. He's going to work the crowd. The crowd's going to go crazy. There's going to be the Romans are going to come in. They're going to crush us. What do you want? Do you want to lose everything we have? Do you want to lose the control? Do you want to lose the power? Do you want to lose the authority? Do you want to lose the dynasty? Ice them. Waste them. This, this is, in effect, what he's saying. And then John picks up his pen, and John is writing this account later. He's not writing it in real time. And he says this as commentary. He did not say this on his own. But as high priest that year, he prophesied. So in John's view, this is actually a prophecy. He prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So John looks at this and he says, even the high priest himself in his own conspiracy to commit murder, he didn't realize it, but he in fact is all part of the plan of God. Yes, Jesus is going to die. But he's going to die for the nation, and he's going to die for all of the scattered people of God. That's a term for Gentiles. That's a term for non-Jewish people, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. We need to get rid of this problem. And you can read it yourself. You see it in Matthew, and you see it in Mark, and, and in Luke, and in John. In particular, uh, Matthew and John, you see Caiaphas and how he works. And again, he does anything that he can to make sure that he can get Jesus dealt with and taken out of the picture. It is a remarkable thing because in his resistance of God, he actually plays a part in accomplishing the will of God. Why do I say this to you? Why all of this, all of this data and all of this information? Because where it comes down to you and to me, friends, is that in our resistance of God and our holding back of things that we, we hold on to, you know, what is your, what is your temple uh, what is your nation? What are you holding on to that you know you should give to God and you're not? Because you, I like my little thing on the side. Um, I like this relationship that I'm in here. I like this habit. I like this addiction. I like this use of money. Uh, I, I, I like these things, and I do not want to surrender them to God. Friends, even in his resistance of God, he ultimately sees the will of God accomplished. And that is what will happen. It, it's a lesson for us when we, when we resist God and we refuse to surrender to God our very lives, we will find that God is always going to win that battle. He will always, always, I mean, you can try, you can try and resist him. You can try to come face to face up against God. But in the end, he will always have his way. You will always lose that one. But you can try. I mean, it's okay to try. 
Uh, in Caiaphas's case, you see him later on in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5, and you see him again fiercely resist the new church. Uh, he, he's got Peter and John on trial there in, in uh, Acts 4 and Acts 5. You can read it yourself. He would attack the early church. And then later on, and the history tells us this, uh, that the very thing that Caiaphas said uh, he wouldn't lose, he lost it all. So in uh, the year 36, the Romans deposed him, and they brought in somebody else to be the high priest. And then ultimately, in the year 70, even the temple was destroyed, never to be rebuilt. Remember, he talked about our temple and our nation. The temple gone, the nation forever changed, uh, because in the end, God always has his way. And we can, we can resist. We can resist and we can put up that, no, God, you're not going to have this. You're not going to have that. But in the end, he will. So my question for you to ponder, what is your temple? Uh, what is your nation? Maybe you're here and you're, you're uh, admittedly not a Christian. Again, you're, you're not close to Christianity. You're looking at it. You're investigating it. You're thinking about it. You're open-minded. Can I tell you who God wants? You. He wants you to surrender yourself to him. And you can resist that. But I'm telling you, the more open you are to him, the more he will keep coming for you. And he will keep reaching for you. And sometimes the reverse happens too. The people who are the most resistant to God, the most rebellious to God, sometimes those are the people who God uses the most. Think about the Apostle Paul, persecutor of the church. I mean, assassin of people in the church. And what happens? God uses this man and uses his passion in ways that he never dreamt possible, I'm sure. He becomes a proponent of the very church that he opposed. What is your temple? What is your nation? Maybe you're not a Christian. The first thing that God wants is you. Uh, maybe you are a Christian and you're in that kind of, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian person, but I know there's areas in my life that I resist God in. What are those areas? Say, well, you know, if I really behave Christianly, then I'm going to have to give this up or I'm going to have to give that up. Uh, I'm going to have to, wow, if I'm a young person and I want to live Christianly, does that mean I actually have to date a Christian? <laughs> does that mean I actually have to date a person who's like goes to church? Are there any good looking people in the church? <laughs> Some people ask that, right? Young people, they say, oh, I don't know. I can't find a, can't find a spouse in the church. I mean, they're all a little bit strange, right? Uh, well, if, I, if I'm really going to live Christianly in this area, then maybe I have to change certain things that I do. Maybe I have to change the, some of the people that I'm hanging around with. I don't know. Maybe I have to change something. Maybe I have to change the way that I talk. Maybe I have to change the things that I look at. Maybe I have to, wow, that, that's, I'm not sure I really want to go that far. Well, again, what God is asking for is, is a surrendered life. Your, your dynasty, your authority, your power, your control. When Jesus comes into the life of a person, he wants to revolutionize the entire life. He wants to change the whole thing upside down, inside out. He wants to completely upset your apple cart. 
So it's very easy to, you know, pray the prayer. And some of you, 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 you prayed last week. I remember. I remember that moment when there were people in this room who raised their hand. Okay, but there's a process that you go through now. There's a process where you say, okay, God, these things in my life also, they need to be surrendered.